It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello! How are you? I'm really good. Sarah's going away this weekend. Oh! So I'm going to be home alone. She is performing on a cruise ship. Wow! I know! Well, why are you not going with her? It's uh, it's an adults-only cruise ship. That would be a problem. It makes it sound debauched, which I, I don't think it is. How exciting is that? Well, this is very interesting that you had such a strong response to it because I've never really fancied cruising myself, and, and yet you're incredibly enthusiastic. I think I'd be enthusiastic in theory, and then I went to see Death on the Nile recently. You know what I mean? It's sort of... I, I, have I not told you about... I think I must have told you this. So I went to the... This is not a cruise ship story. So we went on the to the Arctic for our summer holiday in 2016. Do you know this? Yes, I do, do recall you telling me that. It was sort of a kind of happenstance because we swapped houses with some people who lived on a Danish island and then <laughs> etc. Anyway, and then I got to go to this... I think it's one of the... It is the furthest or the one of the furthest nor, north places in the world the norwegian arctic it's called knee allison right okay and there was a special plane that went on this thing to knee allison and then the weather set in so we couldn't fly back by the way i don't know why i'm telling you the story but it's not really a cruise at all and <laughs> the guy i was with turned out to be sort of quite important right and he is a chief scientist i think he's a lovely bloke we were having dinner and I said, oh, what time does the boat, because I had to get a boat back to the mainland, what time does the boat go? And he said, I think it goes at 10.30, it's fine. And about 10 o'clock, we were finishing our herring or whatever we were eating. And he said, I think we should help along to the quayside for the boat. Anyway, we arrive and the boat is sailing off into the distance. And he's like, to, to the man, what, what's happened to the boat? He says, it's a 10 o'clock sailing. And he's <gasps> like... So basically, I was marooned. So you had, you had to jump in and swim after it? One moment. The guy turns out to be quite important. So he then radios to the people on the boat, and this huge cruise liner turns round to pick me up. <laughs> and But then there were sort of passengers who, who were sort of on the... At the kind of on the deck, looking at, and I, I slightly felt like, oh no, this is a bad scene, like shaking their fists at me. You know what I mean? So I then get on the boat, and the guy says in a rather surly voice, "Who takes my ticket?" Well, I wouldn't have come back for you. <laughs> I then, I so I then, and it was the most. I mean, honestly, I've never felt so seasick in my. Ever. Oh my god! I I took a ferry on New Year's Day in about two thousand five from Gothenburg to Newcastle. And it was end of day stuff, people puking in the corridors. I broke a toilet. Some of those northern crossings can be brutal. Where is she cruising? From Lisbon to Malaga. I think it's three mm. days. She's got to do two shows. What age group is it that she's... she's? They're saying they're trying to attract a younger crowd, but I think that remains to be seen. So what you're saying is actually my demographic... 
50 plus. Silver Sailors. 50 plus. Yes. And do you think it's a crowd that can, if I can put it this way, handle her material? You're alluding to the fact that she's a little blue. A little blue, yes. I'm imagining that she'll come back quite traumatised. I think it's quite exciting. How many days? She's gone for three days, but she's doing two nights on the boat. Where is the sailing from? I think it goes from Lisbon and then it goes round Gibraltar and it she disembarks in Malaga. And is she gonna have a nice time in Malaga now? She's taking a friend with her. Wow. This guy who's a tennis instructor. They seem very uh pally, the two of them. <laughs> Uh, well, that sounds great. Yeah, I think I'd like to. I'd like to do a barge holiday one time, but I don't. I think a cruise is probably a bit beyond me. You like the idea of the barge, do you? Canals. I like the pace of it. I like the way that passers-by say hello, but that's as far as the interaction goes. I don't think that's my thing, really. Do you? No. You know that they've been seizing these yachts from oligarchs. Mm-hmm. I have this idea. Yeah. What if the government ran a lottery where every week of the summer, one ordinary family gets to go on one of those yachts? Could we turn to a sort of timeshare? Yeah. Can you get that in your manifesto? I'll, I'll take it under advisement, as they say. Well, that is, that is exciting. The great tragedy of it is she doesn't really enjoy an all-you-can-eat buffet, and I think that is one of the... Features. Yes. Yeah. I, I've got something to report, which is also travel-related, which is I think my cycling has improved. I'm definitely feeling more... Confident, And actually, on Bank Holiday Monday, I had to go and sign some books at uh, some different bookshops in central London. And it was... Did they ask you to, or you just took it no, on I yourself? No, I just sort of... I just kind of turned up. Uh, these were my books, by the way, not signing some random books. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was quite... You've talked about this to me before. Well, there's something very kind of wonderful about... It's particularly when central London is not so busy about cycling around. Do you know what I mean? It's just a, such a different experience. There is a sort of interaction, isn't there? Yeah. With your environment. Yes, and and the way they've designed the cycle routes as well. Some of the main ones take you past some of the iconic London vistas and you feel like you're in a rom-com. I think that is true, actually. And, you know, whereas in a car, you don't look around you quite in the same way. Mm. Tour de France next year? Tour de Westminster, maybe. Right, shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes, why don't we? So this week, we are looking at the government's plans to sell off Channel 4. Now, Channel 4 was started in the 80s with a remit to commission unique and original programming from independent production companies. And in many ways, this changed the media landscape here in the UK. To find out why the government wants to privatise Channel 4 now and what it would mean for us as audiences, as well as the wider television industry, we're joined by Guardian Media Editor Jim Waterson, former Head of News and Current Affairs at Channel 4, now President of Murray Edwards College at the University of Cambridge, Dorothy Byrne, and founder of production company True Vision, Brian Woods. So what's your reason to be cheerful? It was Sarah's birthday on Monday, just gone. Which I missed. That's fine. She's very peripheral to your life at this point. Why would you remember it? Okay. We went to see Cabaret. Ah, Eddie Redmayne. Well, he, there's been a cast change. So oh. Eddie, Eddie Redmayne and Jesse Buckley have now left, and there's a, a couple of West End stars who've replaced them, Amy Lennox and Fraffy. I love the film, but I'd never seen the stage version, and it is just spectacular. They've transformed this theatre. Yeah, into with tables and everything. Yeah, in, into the Kit Kat Club. And, yeah. and you go in through the tradesman's entrance, and you go through all these corridors, which they've decked out to feel like a nightclub, and there are people milling around with accordions and fiddles and contortionists. It felt like... Um, one of those parties that I've never been to and hope to never go to. You where people are wearing masks, not COVID masks, but the ones with little beaks yeah. and feathers. Why would you not want to go to one of those parties? It, here's why. Those parties are the environment of highly creative, alternative people. And I'm very pleased that they exist. But look at me. I have no business at being in one of those parties. Would you like to go to one of those parties where people are looking at writhing bodies through opera glasses? No, maybe not. Maybe not my, quite my thing. But I feel you're doing yourself down. I'm not going to be at one of those parties in my cardigan and my cords, am I, though? Well, you wouldn't have to wear your cardigan and your cords. That that wouldn't be pleasant for anybody. See, I have a very different image of you than you have of yourself. I think of you as sort of hip and alternative. Could you imagine me in latex? I've given that a lot of thought. 
I don't think that's compulsory at the masked parties. No, no, no. So I've maybe heard. Not, maybe not. Um, anyway, it, it was just a brilliant production and I can't recommend it highly enough. Even to you as, as someone who's not always a fan of a musical. You think I'd like it? You're very difficult to gauge. It's very mood dependent with you, but the staging of it and the production of it is so impressive. I think you'd be bowled over just by that. What's your reason to be cheerful? I had a unique experience, which is a few days ago, I was in the ponds on my own for the whole time. This is like you always hope that you're going to turn up at the cinema, for example, in the middle of the day and get the whole place to yourself. Yeah, and it was it, it was quite... I did think to myself, this is quite a remarkable... It was just me and the lifeguard. Dan. And a few ducks. It wasn't Dan, actually, but... What about your heron? Quite, I didn't see the heron, but I did think, God, this is pretty amazing. It was 14 degrees, which in my book is relatively warm. Were you free to conduct your various data readings with your thermometer? Actually, I didn't have my zapper. I think we've got more on the zapper later, but I didn't have my zapper with me. What a wasted opportunity. I know. No zapping. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by getting an overview on this from The Guardian's media editor, Jim Waterson. Hello. Hello. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. So whenever I read coverage on this, it always mentions, usually from a point of opposition to the privatisation of Channel 4, that Channel 4 itself was a creation of Margaret Thatcher's government. So what is the story behind that? It's a really good line, ironically often deployed by people on the left at the moment, saying, well, if it was good enough for Thatcher, why isn't it good enough for the current Conservative government? The thing was Thatcher felt that ITV and BBC, which were the only TV channels around at that point in the early 80s, were in the same way that the current government attacks the blob. She felt that they were big institutions that crowded out the potential for small companies to come along and make their own shows and to disrupt them. And essentially, Channel 4 was part of a scheme to encourage small businesses and to get different things on air that way. And it was banned from making its own program. So whereas BBC and ITV would make a lot of stuff in-house and have its own teams, and when they wanted a new Saturday night entertainment show, they'd go to their Saturday night entertainment team and say, what have you got in the can? Channel 4's rule was, it will be a broadcaster, but it can't make its own shows. And it's stuck to that all the way through. So everything you watch on Channel 4 has been made by a private company. And a lot of private companies got very rich off that. And it helped kickstart the entire scene in the UK, which now makes all the big hits for Netflix and things like that. It was a real changing point in the whole history of British TV. And it changed broadcasters in in that the BBC, I think about a quarter or maybe even a third of its programmes are made by independent companies. ITV, I think it's about half. And that wasn't really the case prior to Channel 4. It really pushed a lot of people out to create their own businesses, to take risks. It really, in some ways, was the Thatcher dream of uh, uh, someone could start their own business with a few people and within a few years sell it out for millions. And this is why it's quite funny to see sometimes from the left this line being deployed, because it was Thatcher's small business dream coming true. And what about the distinctiveness of Channel 4? What was baked in, to use this phrase you hear everywhere, what was baked into the remit that means the type of programming is particularly unique? Well, it's always had a a brief to do things differently and to do distinctive programming. That's changed over the years. Some of its critics would say it's been watered down to the point where it's not as distinctive as it was in the 80s and 90s and not as risk-taking as it once was. But in its legal underpinning, it has a requirement to make things that are different, to serve underserved audiences and to represent Britain. And how is that different to the BBC, where just by the very nature of the licence fee, everybody in the country is a stakeholder and you would get those programmes presumably anyway? That is an argument. A lot of people listening to this maybe didn't even know that Channel 4 is still owned by the government, because why would you? It's a channel you turn on and it's got adverts on it. It's run on a commercial basis with the profit put back into making more programmes. And the fact that the government owns it is... An anomaly. It's an unusual situation. You've got the BBC that's funded from the license fee. You've got ITV and Channel 5, which have to do public service output, but are entirely run on a commercial basis. And you've got Channel 4 in the middle, sort of providing, in their eyes, a launch pad for lots of small companies and to do things differently. 
So given that it is this anomaly, what is the reasoning behind the sell-off? Is it like an ideological conservative thing that we don't like public ownership, or is it more personal to Boris Johnson's government? Even the people in the Tory party who are ideologically against TV channels being owned by the state, they don't really necessarily care about changing that. If you were starting from scratch again today, you'd be hard pushed to find support in the Tory party for a state-owned broadcaster. But equally, a lot of Conservative MPs are standing up and going, well, while we wouldn't naturally go down this route, if it ain't broke, why are we trying to fix it? So you've had Nadine Doris being ridiculed a little bit for suggesting that a privatisation would set Channel 4 free to compete with Netflix. And I think that possibly misses the point in terms of what people are so keen to preserve. But what is the existential threat from streaming services? It's easier to understand when it comes to the BBC and justifying the licence fee. Is it not being able to compete on budgets? Is it just luring away viewers and turning them into subscribers? When you look at the budgets, all of Channel 4's programming, you're talking six, seven hundred million pounds a year. A single series of The Crown on Netflix can cost a hundred million. How could you ever get Channel 4 to a point where it could compete with that? Channel 4 is the sort of much-loved niche band that can sell out a sort of three or 4,000 capacity venue with some obsessive fans and do some good stuff. And the government's sort of walking in at the back and heckling them going, why aren't you selling out Wembley Arena? And they're like, that's not really the thing that we do. And Netflix are perfectly good to, to sell out the big gigs with this slightly tortured metaphor if you're still following it. Netflix is enormously popular and particularly among younger audiences is very dominant in the UK. So you can't deny that audience behaviour is changing. The problem is, could you ever get Channel 4 to a point where it could compete? Or do you just accept the point of Channel 4 is to do things differently? So taking all of the above into consideration, uh, along with the fact that Channel 4 doesn't cost the public anything, and even the most wildly optimistic estimates of what a sale could fetch is chicken feed in terms of public spending. I mean, not not in terms of what you or I would like to see on our bank accounts, but it just seems like a very hard fight to pick. Well, this government has shown itself very happy to pick fights with the media in order to make a point. And this is the question that hangs over it. And this isn't just the Guardian media editor asking this question. It's Conservative MPs, the chair of the Culture Select Committee, uh, Julian Knight, who's not a man who's uh, short of an opinion asking, you know, is this being done because the government doesn't like perceived political slights? Is it being done as almost a punishment beating to warn them off going down a certain route in future and nudge them? Or is this being done, if we take the government on face value, because they genuinely think Channel 4 is a great thing and it would be better off if it could thrive and have someone put a few hundred million pounds of investment into it and grow it? If the privatisation goes through... I'm imagining that Gogglebox or Dairy Girls or Naked Attraction could continue to thrive on a commercial channel. It's not like good programmes have never come out of purely commercial channels before. What would change for viewers, theoretically? A lot would depend on during the big parliamentary debates that will be had where MPs will sort of argue over what clauses need to be put in to protect a privatised channel for, how many restrictions do they put in? Because if they put in a load of restrictions, you've basically got channel four as it is with the obligations to make all the programmes it currently does. But that's not very enticing to a private buyer. Whereas if you get rid of all the obligations, well, you've not really got Channel 4. You've just got a slot on your TV broadcasting whatever. And that's maybe more attractive to a private buyer. So you've got to balance the two things if you're selling it off. How do you make this enticing enough while also making sure that MPs are happy enough to vote for it because they feel that certain things will be protected? And then what about the television industry? Given that Channel 4 did transform the landscape and now lots of British television is made by independent production companies. A lot of small independent TV production companies get their sort of first commissions from Channel 4. And they're the ones who are most worried. And you can tell this because they're all writing to their MPs and going, look, do you really want to put the 10, 15 person strong business that's just getting going in your constituency out of business? If a big private buyer came in, some US network buys this channel, 
They'll want to put their own shows on it. They'll want to deal with the big boys. They'll want to buy in shows from other global companies. They won't be bothered to take that meeting with the startup in Leeds and spend the time talking through what ideas they've got. Because it's not really commercially sensible. You can usually get more viewers by putting out Drek rather than really going out of your way to do something experimental because there's a risk involved. And if you want to make a financial return, you're going to have to either cut costs or up viewers pretty quickly. And if you're a betting man, does this go through as uh, Nadine Doris intends it? Does it get a bunch of revisions or is it scuppered? I think it's going to have a really hard fight. We've got an election in probably early 2024 and then you've got six month run up to an election. And you've got about maybe a year to get the legislation through Parliament. That means you've not got an awful lot of time to get this thing sold. Can the government push this through? Does it have the political capital to get it through both the House of Commons and the House of Lords? And then can they find a buyer to accept it with all of the clauses attached? I I, I think it's probably more likely than not to go through, but... It would not surprise me if it just collapsed and the government decided, look, there's an election on the horizon. Why are we picking this battle that's take up all of our parliamentary time? It does seem like such a strange thing to spend parliamentary time on. Let's not kid ourselves. Linear TV, which still makes up most of the money that Channel 4 gets, that is in terminal decline. That is only going to go down in the long run. And on many nights, Channel 4 is struggling to get over a million viewers. So don't kid ourselves. YouTube is eating its audience. TikTok is eating its audience. Linear TV is still massive. Don't underestimate it, but it is on a long-term decline. And I do think we can get a bit you know, starry-eyed about the wonders of the Channel 4 that we remember rather than things as they are now. But if you view Channel 4 as a way of making experimental TV that doesn't cost the taxpayer anything, almost like an incubator for new programs, then there is a pretty strong case for it. And one of the one of my favorite stories is it's lots of programs that Channel 4 make that people don't even realize are made by Channel 4. And then they end up on Netflix and become massive hits. There's a show called The End of the Fucking World, which was a massive hit on Netflix. And a Channel 4 executive once told me that their kid came to him and said, Dad, you should really commission something like this. It's really great. And he's like, we did make this. This was ours. <laughs> and it always cracks me up because there's that sense that they are making the shows. Their problem is how do they get them to the audience that they want to see them. Do you want to finish, Jim, by giving us one of the wonders of Channel 4 of your memory? Probably the confessional one is sneaking downstairs to watch Eurotrash late when, when I was far too young to be watching. I hope this doesn't go in the podcast. I think lots of people listening to this podcast will have loved It's a Sin, or they might have loved Derry Girls. And I kind of hope that we see a bit more of the Channel 4 that's doing interesting experimental things like moving production out to Leeds, putting on rugby league matches on terrestrial TV for the first time in a generation, or doing uh, interesting things like buying up rights to sports that no one else is interested in. I hope it's, if they do get through this still in public ownership, I hope it's used as a bit of a shock treatment to get them thinking about what people care about and not just going down the more commercial route because saving Channel 4 in itself isn't worth it. Saving Channel 4 is a thing that does interesting things and supports British culture is worth it. Jim Watson, thanks so much. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, I'm delighted to say that to talk further about the issue of Channel 4 and its possible privatisation, we're joined by former head of news and current affairs at Channel 4, now president of Murray Edwards College, Cambridge, Dorothy Byrne. Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. 
I think I'm right in saying that you joined Channel 4 from ITV, I think in the late 90s. I wonder if you could just start by telling us what it looked like from the outside at that point in its history and then what you found on the inside about the culture of Channel 4 and how you find being there. Well, Channel 4 is really a unique entity, not just in British broadcasting, but in world broadcasting. Coming from ITV, it was definitely a different sort of place. It was a place where you could really experiment and do utterly different things. And if I think of the things I'm proudest of, I could never have done them anywhere else. I will give you one example. When we couldn't get into Guantanamo Bay, nobody knew what Guantanamo Bay was like. I downloaded the CIA torture handbook because hilariously that was available on the internet. And I set up my own Guantanamo Bay and tortured people. And I advertised, do you think you're a really tough guy? So I got all these people who thought they were signing up for something like SAS, are you tough enough? And then I said to them, I'm going to torture you. And I gave them a medical and then we tortured them. And interestingly, all the right wing people who were in favour of torture at the end said, I'm totally against torture because I would have told you anything. I mean, that made waves around the world. That's an example of the sort of thing you just felt you could do. And then I'll just give one more, which is Sri Lankan war crimes. Nobody in the whole world cared about the war crimes in Sri Lanka. And we made this extraordinary film... And David Cameron, a Tory, as it happens, the Prime Minister, watched that film and it was just before the Commonwealth Heads of Government Summit and he said, I am going to Sri Lanka and I am going to put to President Rajapaksa the information that I have just seen in that Channel 4 programme. That's because we did things that other people didn't do. The last film I commissioned was about how women are misinformed about HRT and not given it. ITV or the BBC wouldn't have commissioned it because they just go, nobody will watch that. Someone said to me, well, only old women will watch that. And I said, well, I've got news for you. There are a lot of old women. And actually, you're wrong because the perimenopause can start in your early 40s. And the children of women going through the menopause and their male partners and their employers... They all want to know. Millions of people have watched that programme. And at its best, that's what Channel 4 is. And it doesn't cost you any money. And that culture of disruptiveness and and boldness that you described, so it's still present at Channel 4, but has it become a smaller slice of the pie since you began working there in the the late 90s? And, And is that part of what perhaps has left it vulnerable? I think what is true is that when Channel 4 started, there weren't other things there. And now there's lots of mad stuff on the internet. And if people think that Channel 4 is not as crazy as it used to be, maybe the world's changed a bit. Maybe it is a bit more sensible, but perhaps that's how the United Kingdom has changed in that period. But there's a point that you made in your McTaggart lecture back in 2019, which is the the keynote speech at the Edinburgh Television Festival, uh, about the demand for longer form, intelligent content, things like TED Talks, podcasts. Was Channel 4 slow to spot that there was an appetite for that kind of thing? Well, I think Channel 4 always did things like that, and do I think they should do more of them? Yes. I think quite a number of TED Talks and those sorts of things are quite safe. And where Channel 4 was good, and still is good at times, is in saying things that other people won't say. I did a film, Nelson Mandela Beneath the Halo, with Peter Hitchens. 
in which we criticised Nelson Mandela. And actually, when we were making the film, every now and then when I was talking to Peter Hitchens, I would say, oh, well, Nelson Mandela was particularly useless here, don't you think, Peter? And Peter would go, I don't know, Dorothy, you're saying that, but I don't know what I think. And I'd go, we do know what you think. We have agreed all this. And after the film went out, he said, I found it so unbelievable that Channel 4 had commissioned me to make a film about Nelson Mandela being useless that I thought you were secretly filming me. And it was all (laughs) a stunt. I got Kelvin McKenzie to make a film, How to Save the Tories. He ran out of ideas of how to save the Tories. That was quite interesting. I had to think of some because there wasn't enough in the programme. Talk to us about Channel 4 News, Dorothy, and its distinctiveness. It's absolutely key. Nobody on earth believes that even when Channel 4 is privatised, they will keep one hour of expensive, investigative, international news in the heart of prime time. There is no way that a a commercial company over time will want troublemaking, difficult international investigations going out between seven and eight because it's the inheritance you then get at eight o'clock for your more popular programmes. But you cut your teeth on World in Action, which to younger viewers, I think they'll be surprised to hear that. There was world-class investigative current affairs journalism on ITV back in the day. And that existed because, as a commercial broadcaster, they also had requirements to fulfil. So is that something that could only exist in another era? Or or could a sale have that stuff written into it, that whoever buys it would, would have to keep providing those hours? We know that isn't what's going to happen. In the era of Granada, totally commercial company, much less competition, we were always told that Granada had told ITV, you can have Coronation Street if you take World in Action before it. Really hard, expensive current affairs and then straight into Coronation Street. That balance worked while there was less advertising competition, for ITV as a huge mainstream broadcaster, that no longer worked in the heart of prime time. Talk to us about the government's argument that privatisation would free Channel 4 to compete against Netflix. Well, that would be like me competing with Angelina Jolie. (laughs) You know, I'm a marvellous person. I'm the president of a Cambridge college. But I'm not a major film actress. It's it's entirely irrelevant. Nor could Angelina Jolie... Compete with Dorothy Byrne. Compete with me. Netflix does one thing. It makes very expensive things like Bridgerton, long documentaries for an international audience. Channel 4 is about my country. It's making programmes for me to help my democracy. It's got a totally different purpose. Netflix is over there making Bridgerton, which is fabulous. And Channel 4 is over here making programmes about poverty in the north of England. Why people are not fully engaged with our democracy. What's wrong with NHS cancer treatment? That isn't what Netflix is doing. How optimistic do you feel about this privatisation being defeated? Well, at first, I felt really depressed and thought it's going to happen. And then, I mean, the fact that when the government did a consultation, only 2% of people in Britain wanted it to be privatised, and 96% were against. Those are figures that um, a politician should look at. 
my experience of Channel 4 is the people who watch it most, Channel 4 News, is actually conservative MPs. They, you know, they really like it. So, yeah, they criticise it, but that's because they're actually watching it. it. It's a tiny group within the Conservative Party where they are really throwing red meat to a relatively few supporters. How is it red meat, though, if there's so little support for it amongst Conservatives? Because there's support among a certain smaller group of right-wing Conservatives who just think privatisation is always good. They don't seem to have learned from, let's look at the probation service, you know, was that good? I think they're out of step with the rest of the country and actually out of step with most Conservatives. Well, look, Dorothy Byrne, we're really grateful to you for joining us. We're really grateful to you for setting out your case against privatisation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. To round the conversation off, we have Brian Woods, who's founder and executive producer at True Vision, which has made many acclaimed and award-winning films for Channel 4 over the years. Hello, Brian. Hello. Thanks for joining us. We're trying to get at what is so unique about the culture of Channel 4. And I, I wondered if I could ask you, what do you remember about your first pitch to the channel back in the 90s? I think so. The, f- the first pitch that really sticks in my mind to Channel 4 was when we went along and talked about a film that became The Dying Rooms, which was revealing that there was a policy in China, uh, the, the, the clash of the one-child policy and the son preference meant that girls were being abandoned and left to orphanages and that the central control of the government meant that those orphanages had to report the, the consistent numbers of babies in there. And so they were literally neglecting babies to death to keep the numbers at, a, at an appropriate level. I did talk to the BBC about it. But the editor of BBC's Panorama at the time didn't really want to do a China story, wasn't very interested. We then went along to Channel 4 and commissioning editor at Channel 4 went, this is a fantastic story, really important. Not sure how we're going to afford it, but it's too important not to do. We have to tell this story. That film then certainly changed my life completely. It it was shown all around the world. I think it was, for a long time, it may still be, it was Channel 4's best-selling ever documentary. That was one of those films that was so central to Channel 4's raison d'etre of of sort of making trouble. I remember the the commissioning editor at the time loved it because he said, this is going to cause trouble. And that's what Channel 4 should be doing. That's a clear point of difference with the BBC, that culture of disruptiveness. Yeah, there are some brilliant journalists in the BBC and there's clearly a desire to bring important stories out. But everybody I've worked with at the BBC is constantly aware of the fact that whatever they say is going to be jumped on and is going to be criticised by certain aspects of the press and by politicians. And that does cause a nervousness. A lot of the conversation, Brian, so far has focused on what privatisation would mean for Channel 4 audience and the type of programmes that are made. Can you also, though, talk to us about the role that's played in the industry in terms of the independent sector and how in today's landscape, which is different than the landscape of when it was founded, uh, how selling it off would affect companies like yours? So I've got two, I'm involved in two companies. I'm involved in True Vision, which is based in Cambridge. And I'm also a director and shareholder of of Canda Productions, which is in Leeds. We set up in Leeds before Channel 4 made any announcements about moving there. Uh, My colleague, Anna Hall, who runs Canda, has lived in Leeds all her life. And she really wanted to set up a production company there because she felt there was a lot of talent there. Um, And... There's no doubt whatsoever that in private hands, the commitment to the regions that is embodied in everything that Channel 4 does at the moment, a commercial owner is is just not going to pursue that. It's more the regions than the nations. And what about the independent sector? So the independent sector is fantastically dependent on Channel 4 because all their programmes are being made by indies. Apparently, one of the things that's go- that's being discussed is the fact that Channel 4 would be allowed to make its own 
programs, which it's never done before. And clearly for a commercial organisation that is primarily interested in maximising shareholder return, it's cheaper to make programmes in-house. And those kinds of programmes, the small companies that are the lifeblood of the indie sector, are far less likely to survive than the current Channel 4 model. Does it necessarily follow that a buyer would make programmes in-house? Because part of the legacy of Channel 4 is kick-starting this trend of indie productions in this country. Is it that it's not so much that they wouldn't commission indies, but the type of programmes which have a higher impact socially, but perhaps don't attract the same kind of viewing figures? Is it, is it more the case that those types of indies would be at risk? I think there's no doubt that if you're primary imperative is making a profit, then you're going to be far less interested in making the kind of programmes that True Vision or Candor or many other current affairs and documentaries companies I can think of make. Those programmes are relatively expensive. They can be more risky because you're doing undercover investigations and that kind of thing, which, which take a long time and can be quite expensive. If there is a public service remit that you have to fulfil, you can just fulfil that by doing a you know, a film about why haven't our pizzas got more mozzarella on them these days or whatever that is going to rate much better. You're easily going to be able to sell advertising about around it, but it's not actually going to be truly doing what people like me want to do, which is make worthwhile TV programmes. How much of this has changed over the years? Does it re- retain its distinctiveness in your view in the programmes it makes? I think that it was more outward-looking internationally uh, when we started. The first half a dozen films or so that I made for Channel 4 were international programmes. We made a film about modern-day slavery back in 1999 when people didn't know that there was such a thing as modern-day slavery. Those kinds of films are harder to get away these days. I think it would be very hard nowadays to get a film like that where we were going to the Ivory Coast away. So I think that that has shifted somewhat, but I think that in terms of the distinctiveness of Channel 4, you're not going to watch a Channel 4 film and think, oh, am I watching Channel 4 or am I watching BBC 2 or or BBC 3 or ITV, you know, or Channel 5? It's a very distinctive channel. It has a very distinctive character. We've all had our heads turned to a a greater or lesser extent by streaming services like Netflix and Apple TV, and and that gets overstated, but undoubtedly that's only going to increase. What does that look like from an industry perspective? perspective and in what way would a privatised channel for either increase or curtail the power of those streaming services? The interesting thing is that the, the government's position on this seems to be quite confused because they don't seem to understand that the streaming services are kind of in a completely different space to, to Channel 4. It's like, oh, well, they're on the screen and therefore they're all the same thing. I've been in this industry for 30 odd years and in that time, for the first 20 odd years, I remember endlessly going to conferences and so on and being told that documentary was in crisis. Documentary always seemed to be in crisis. It was always the death of documentary and everyone was always harking back to the golden age of documentary. And then for the last 10 years or so, people have stopped saying that because they can't really get away with saying that anymore because BAFTA brought back the award for best documentary the Oscars started making a big fuss about the documentary award. One of the interesting things when COVID hit was all drama stopped and all entertainment production pretty much stopped. And suddenly the broadcasters were looking at the sort of tumbleweed going across the schedule six months, 12 months, 18 months down the line. And they turned to us factual producers and said, we need more hours to fill. And when we get that right, when documentary makers get that right, they rate just as well as really high-end, really expensive drama. Why does Channel 4 continue to have a distinctive mission if what you've said about documentaries and the last decade and the streaming services is, is right? If you look on Netflix, then you will find really brilliantly made things like The Tinder Swindler, beautifully produced, really good stories, really well told but there's a tiny handful of them. And one of the reasons that 
Britain leads the world in documentary production and that everybody around the world looks to Britain when it comes to documentary is that we produce so many and therefore we have this really great ladder up which documentary producers can climb. There are tens of hours of documentary, new documentary on British television every week. In America, HBO produce a few, Netflix produce a few. There's there's a tiny amount of production of factual programme and and documentary. And therefore, we're a lot better at it, frankly. We're really, really good at it because we get to practice a lot and we get to make mistakes a lot. And we can make shorts for BBC Three and so on. So that kind of thing and and gradually work our way up and, and gain more experience. We're fans of optimism on this podcast. And to finish, I won't ask you to look in your crystal ball and and tell us what's going to happen with the proposed Channel 4 privatisation. But more broadly, if you look to the horizon, what do you feel optimistic about for the TV industry in the UK? I do factual programmes and I do factual dramas. And I'm incredibly optimistic about those because there's never been more on TV and on the streamers being produced. I sincerely hope that that will continue to be the case with Channel 4. I fear if somehow they do manage to persuade enough Tories to troop through the lobbies and and get this away, then that won't be the case and it'll change a lot for the independent sector. The independent sector will be devastated by that and a lot of jobs will be lost. But hopefully MPs will be sensible enough to realise that this idea is utter madness and you shouldn't fix what ain't broken. Well, if you want to stay on the line after we finish recording, I'm pretty certain that Ed will be pitching you his idea about a local MP who, in his spare time, solves cold cases in his constituency. (laughs) But for now, Brian Woods, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Cheers. What did you think? Yeah, I think like a lot of people, when I heard about this privatisation proposal, it it stirred up a lot of warm feelings towards Channel 4 and a lot of nostalgia. And then, as I knew we were going to do this episode, I've been trying to empathise with uh, how a Conservative might think about it. And in a country which already has an extensive network of public service broadcasting in, in the BBC... How easy is it to justify something that was set up as almost like a proof of concept that there was another way of doing it other than the BBC? And I I wondered if that might be where I got to. But having had these conversations, I'm pretty convinced that even though it is this anomaly that grew out of these particular circumstances, it is a really important part of our culture, specifically with that idea of disruption and making trouble in the way that the the BBC isn't able to do. Yeah, I mean, I I found both Dorothy and Brian really convincing on that, just as the sort of programme makers. And it's this sort of public interest question. And I suppose what Dorothy was saying was you can regulate all you like, but you're never going to be able to regulate so much that it reproduces what's there at the moment. And whether it's the adventurous programming, the programming that might be more minority interests, the region's point, that isn't going to be the driving force of a privatised Channel 4. And I think that's sort of fundamentally what it comes down to. And also then on the other side, I think what the case Dorothy convincingly made was, what's the burning platform here? I mean, what's the reason why it's like... What's the proof of why this needs to happen? Yes, it, it doesn't cost anything. Like what's the case for why it needs privatising? I think the risks of privatisation have been spelt out very well and the lack of case for it, that's what I felt. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. As ever, we would love to hear from you if you've got thoughts on this week's episode. Praise. Praise, of of course. Here here he goes again. But if if you've got thoughts on, um, say, for example, the media landscape in in this country and uh, ideas to improve it based on this week's episode or any ideas of something you'd like to hear us talk about, we'd love to hear from you. Email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Actually, this was um, kind of the last media episode that we did on the subject of children's news. And this comes from Claire Nurk, who says, I'm running a bit late, but I've just been listening to your children's news episode. 
Ed wondered if other countries are doing similar. Here in France, there is a daily children's newspaper called Le Quotidien, The Daily. They have various versions for primary, senior school and A-level ages, and my children love it. It's physical paper, and they tackle all sorts. Being French, it's a bit less touchy-feely, which prompts challenging dinner table discussions. But on the whole, I think it's really valuable approach to teach children how to engage with news. And your correspondence was spot on. The stuff that gets discussed in the playground is quite eye-opening sometimes. The children's newspapers help us adults with the explanations. Uh, I'm jealous of the breadth of options in the UK and happy to hear that news round is still going. Aww, I have fond memories me of John Craven's me jumpers. Uh, this one comes from Betty Wright. Uh, she says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I think you might find this podcast interesting and it will give you all the info you need about water and its wonderful, interesting properties. She continues, I continue to enjoy your podcast despite the fact you have yet to visit and swim in our wonderful local river. See January 2021 email. And uh, the link she gives is to the curious cases of Rutherford and Fry. Oh, that's a great programme on Radio 4. Uh, yeah. Radio 4 podcast and it's Series 18, Part 1, The Weirdness of Water. And she's specifically uh, suggesting this because it may give us the definitive answer to whose thermometer is more accurate, yes. your or Dan the lifeguard yeah. with his thing bobbing around on a piece of string. That is interesting. What will we have to talk about if we resolve that issue? Yeah. I've gone back to Betty Wright's email from January 2021. I hope you're impressed. Are you? I am, yeah. She lives in the north of Scotland spends most of her days outdoors doing stuff around the garden. Oh, yes, I remember this, yeah. Harvesting willow, you're just saying that. Harvesting willow, pruning trees, cutting back gorse, raking leaves. She says, Ed, you said you wanted to try gardening. Did I say that? Welcome here any time post-lockdown with your family, but no dogs except virtual ones. That relates to Chutney, my virtual dog. Wonderful river for wild swimming too. I feel... That I was very specifically excluded from that invitation. It's a pretty slight slight, if it was a slight. I can perceive even the slightest of slights. Anyway, it's a possible... It's a, if we do a road trip... Yeah. I'd be into doing some raking in Betty's garden. What about the swimming bit? I'll stand on the shore with your zapper. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We're in the outro. Ooh. Oh, thank goodness. I thought you weren't going to do an ooh. Also, I did it in the wrong way around. Didn't I? There's less gusto in your ooh than there usually is. Ooh, we're in the outro. There we go. There we go. That's what the uh, that's what the listeners want. Um, you you got to do something exciting. I can't believe we didn't talk about this. Yes, I, I went to see Ronnie O'Sullivan in the semi-finals of the snooker in Sheffield at the Crucible. Was at uh, the Crucible, which was intense. And having never been to the snooker, yeah, what is it like as an event? Is it very hushed? Yes, it is quite harsh. You're allowed to sort of cheer and shout and scream before the frame, but the, the, there is a sort of... You do have to be quite careful. You know what I like about it is it's very relaxed and informal. Mm. I've met some of the... Did you watch Snooker when you were growing up? Yes, uh, yeah, people like Dennis Taylor. Alex yes, well, I talked to Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. And well, they were all there. They were around, yeah. And John Virgo, do you remember John Virgo? I do, yes. Lovely bloke, John Virgo. All of them very nice. Anyway, so it was fun. Yeah. And I'm very pleased for Ronnie. Shall we thank our guests? I'd like to thank Jim Waterson, Dorothy Byrne and Brian Woods. Emma Caution produces all the audio for our podcast. All the research and guest booking has been provided by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been home alone while Sarah's cruising. He's been... Swimming alone whilst and the lifeguards on a day off. <laughs> These have been reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.